Today, I am talking to Faisal Siddiqui. He is the founder of the creative business company, a performance brand consultancy that helps challenge a brand scale profitably by unlocking the power of brand marketing. And he is formerly the senior director of strategy and innovation at Profit in London. Faisal, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing wonderful, Ben. Thank you for having us on. Thank you for uh, taking the time out so early in the day, especially when it's cold and hard to get out of bed. Today, I wanted to chat a little bit about how good positioning or how positioning can be done well to unlock growth. So knowing that a lot of people listening, uh, typically in software, brand and brand topics tend not to get covered so much compared to the tactical end of marketing. So I'm very keen to get into the details of this with you. The first question I have here is, what sort of got you hooked into thinking more about positioning and why did it become something very important to you? Very simply because it can radically transform the fortunes of any business if you get it right. I see positioning as the foundational elements of effective marketing. If you don't get your positioning right, there's a whole bunch of knock-on and trickle-down effects that stops you from creating more effective marketing. I think there was a... Um, we are big students of marketing and advertising history. And there was a famous ad that David Ogilvy took out in the, in, in the trade press when, when he was promoting Ogilvy, the agency. And, and the ad simply just said, 27 ways to create advertising that sells. And Ogilvy, if your listeners don't know, in the 60s was very much the research-driven agency. So you have BBH which produced the Avis, We Try Harder, the VW, Think Small. That was uh, run by David Birnbach. He was the start of the creative revolution. David Ogilvy was this suave British man in New York, and he was very much a research guy. He was the head of research at Young and Rubicam. So they very much researched, put a lot of investment in trying to figure out what works. And he was very influenced by direct response. So what we call kind of a bottom of the funnel performance marketing originally came out of a lot of the thinking that Ogilvy did. So anyways, going back to this ad, it said 27 ways to create advertising that sells. And the number one thing that they said is the most important thing you can get right is how you position your product. And that can be a product, that can be a company, but positioning is really, really where the stakes are put into the ground. And it's a huge, huge signal we believe, a future success for marketing and sales. So just so that we're, we're super clear, positioning in this case, what do you mean or how are you defining it? So, for example, I know a lot of people may, you know, use the word messaging, USP, these types of words. What does positioning mean in this case? We define positioning as the unique value a brand can deliver. And if we double click on value, we define that in two ways, both functional value but also intangible value. And I think the way we like to think about positioning is, you know this, but often there's a lot of positioning that's not done well. And I think on one end of the spectrum, there's this belief that positioning and brand strategy is very kind of 30,000 foot. It's all about purpose and values and kind of just hot air. And I think our problem with that camp is that you're not actually ending up selling anything. There's no value. You're not telling customers why they should choose you over your competitors. Every company's beliefs are generally the same. So that's on one camp. 
On the other camp is a very narrowly defined, say, product USP. And the challenge with calling that a positioning in itself is that functional benefits tend to be tend to be generic. So every single kind of software company is going to talk about faster or better service, easier to use. So the way we define positioning is, is it sits between this very kind of myopic product messaging and this hot air of purpose and values. And I think the best positionings combine uh, a bit of both. It's interesting that you mentioned the zoomed in product positioning being sort of easily replaced Something that came to mind was the the old Apple iPod, which was, you know, 10,000 songs in your pocket, which at the time would have been representative of something bigger, you know, innovation, convenience, these types of things. But now if you said the same thing, you would say, well, everyone's got that on their iPhone, for example. Is that an example of what you're, what you're talking about here? Slightly, but I think the nuance with that example was they were, they were a first mover. Well, technically not, right? So we've done a lot of studies on the advantage of, of coming first. And so the Apple iPod was actually second. There was, a, I forget the name of it, but there were almost, there were muse, digital music players where they were kind of like a hard disk. And I forget what they were, but they were in the late 90s, early 2000s, and they were clunky and they were everything that Apple is not. And so they never really took traction. So in the imagination of the public, the iPod was very much the first one to do that. And so I think you bring, a, you bring up a really good question, which is, One's positioning is a function of, yes, the capabilities that you can bring as a company and then also what's important to consumers, but where you are on the maturity of the, of the category itself. So as a first mover, when no one has claimed a very functional advantage, which is carry 10,000 songs in your pocket, it would be stupid to position on a belief or something less tangible. So I think it, that's a really good example of, I would argue, a product positioning, which is quite functional, but can get away with that because they're the first mover in the category. But let's remind ourselves, it was also sold by a brand called Apple with 30 years of advertising behind it. Do you have a, an example of how that positioning would evolve over time as the product category matures? So for example, it's it's gone from being a new thing to being very common. How might the positioning evolve over time? Great question. I think about the famous ads where they just showed the silhouette of the earphones, right? And it was all about dance and music. So you could tell there, like the category of digital music players have matured. They're probably competitors. And so now we need to differentiate on less. We're not differentiating on product features and benefits so much. We're, we're, we're differentiating based on image, inclusion, things like that. Coming back to positioning at a higher level, what are some cues that flag that positioning has gone wrong for a business? So imagine there's a marketing manager somewhere, a marketing director, they're hunched over a desk, they're thinking, ah, what, what are they going to look for that says their positioning has gone wrong? I, I'll respond that in, in two ways. One, when they are developing said positioning, we use just a very simple evaluation framework called the four Ds. And the four Ds are, is the positioning desirable, different, directionable, and durable? So desirable to consumers. So is what you are saying relevant to the needs of consumers? Is it different to your competitors? I think the third one, directional, is super important. And is often very much, it kind of differentiates how we think about positioning versus, say, other comms agencies, 
We don't believe positioning is simply just a comms brief. We believe powerful positionings can be strong organizing constructs for businesses. It informs things beyond the marketing department. So what's a good example of a directional positioning? Think about Ritz-Carlton. Ritz-Carlton's main touch point that shapes perceptions isn't really its ads, but it's the conduct and behavior of its service staff, which is precisely why Ritz-Carlton's positioning, which is summarized in a nice little internal slogan called ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, is a great example of a positioning that is very directional to employees. By the way, that example of ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, the positioning is not just a slogan. They have service values that sit underneath it, backed up with specific policies. So every frontline staff has up to $2,000 US to solve a customer complaint on the spot, right? So they're devolving power to the frontline. So that's uh, directional. And the fourth one is durable, right? So can we run with this thing for for a couple of years? You know, it, we're, are we, we don't want to position positioning to be trendy. Think about, I think it was Julian Tressler. He did he had, uh, at BBH. They did that kind of great deck talking about this, the sameness of advertising. Remember how every single brand was kind of like, find your this, find your that, right? So that that's just an example of, of things that are very trendy. And I think in our industry, it is, there's an incredible amount of force and inertia that pushes people towards being fashionable in terms of the things we say and how we present products and how we market them and take them to market. Think of everyone's seen that LinkedIn post with all the luxury brands, you know, when they change their logos, they all look the same. And so I think the the hardest thing about positioning is to is to swim against that stream and to be and to be very unfashionable. And I think that's how you create things that are positionings that are durable and stand the test of time. So that's the first thing I would say. If you look at their, if if I'm if I'm said brand manager who's hunched over, I, I would look at the positioning options and evaluate them using the four Ds. That's the first thing. The second thing is look at the performance data of your campaign. So you can work outside in. You can say, right, we are running a number of campaigns, and whatever metrics we use to evaluate our campaigns, be it kind of if it's videos, it's how, you know percentage of video viewed. If it's more of a click-based things, what's your CTR? But obviously positioning is not just the comms but on, on your ads. The positioning is also on the website. So when people come to the website, are they going from the homepage to the product page? Just analyze your basic funnel. And if there are, and, and you know, you can compare that to industry averages. And if you're and if you're if, if you're messaging both in your advertising and on your other touch points are not converting, that's a signal that potentially your positioning is wrong. So I think you have to take it from both directions, both inside out and outside in. And that might be a good gauge for some of the listeners. How should people think about positioning for a brand versus uh, a product? Let's, let's focus this on a B2B use case. So Google, a couple of years back, did a really great piece of research on what are the drivers of purchase within B2B. So say, for example, a company's doing an RFP, they, they want to buy, say, I don't know, an ERP system, they're choosing between different alternatives. One of the, Some of the main drivers of purchase, yes, is kind of cost, quality, usability, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of them are kind of human. So what do these people like to work with, for example? By choosing said brand, will I look good in front of my peers? 
does said brand provide insights for me? So again, I look good in, in my company. So these are all examples of uh, value that only a company can deliver, perhaps not a product can deliver. So the way we think about a product positioning is that the aperture is a lot more narrow, right? We're just really summarizing the benefits and features of said product and doing that in a very concise way. Often what we will do to uh, delineate between, say, uh, to your question of product and a brand, is we will call a product position, we'll just call them value propositions. They're very tight articulations of why a product is different and all of those different things. Whereas a, a company, I think the aperture is bigger. The number of ingredients you're talking about is bigger. You're talking about a company, its people, where it's going, how it's different to other companies. Just the scale of the endeavor is, is far greater. And I think that those secondary and tertiary benefits, like what are they like as people to work with? Um, do they make me look good if I choose them? Those are only relevant within a company positioning discussion. And, and they're very much important drivers of purchase. Got it. How, how would the dynamic change or would it stay the same if it is a one brand, single product? One brand, single product is you're shrink wrapping everything into one. It's a great question. So a lot of uh, you know, fast-growing B2B SaaS companies, they are defined by their product. So it's kind of a mix between both, right? Interestingly, I think the challenge for a lot of those companies is when they launch kind of service extension number two or software upgrade two or new product to be. And immediately what happens is that the brand, what they've created a brand that was very much synonymous with a single product. But then what happens is their organization grows beyond that individual product and there's a need to revisit the brand strategy. Often, a lot of the times when we work with B2B companies, it is precisely because of that. So their original positioning, which was very product focused, is no longer relevant because they've evolved, they've grown, and their perceptions lag behind reality. You've got me on the edge here. Uh, I'm curious to know, how, how do you tackle that problem where the brand has grown from one product and is now into two. I, I think I, I'm not sure if it's happening right now, but Toggle, as an example, started as a time tracking app. I know they've expanded into other products, but I, and it looks like they've just put Toggle Track, Toggle X, Toggle Y after it. How would how would do you solve this? It's a very very tricky thing to do well because the short answer is you need to move slightly up the benefit ladder without losing what was what made the original product different. I'll give you an example of that. One of the clients we are working with is called Engaged MD. One of the, what they do and what they got famous for was building educational online videos around informed consent for fertility patients. So that's a whole bag word of jar like a bag full of jargon. What that means in plain English is if you are seeking fertility, so say uh, you, you are a couple and you need help to conceive, fertility treatment is when they do a number of procedures to help induce birth. Now, the legal ramifications of that and the educational elements to from on behalf of the clinic to actually the, the patients are huge, right? No one wants to get sued. It's America in the end. <laughs> and so traditionally, all of this education was class-based. And so you have these very high-paid doctors uh, literally doing PowerPoint presentations for, to board couples. 
And so what this company did was they said, okay, you know what, we're going to take all of that and we're just going to make it online. Now, what have they done? So they grew and they got really famous with out of that. They have number one market share in the US and the UK and Canada, but they have gone beyond the fertility market. So how do you broaden the story there? So I think what we tend to do is we go a bottoms up approach and we'll say, listen, let's look at all of the different users. Both you are targeting, not just in the fertility market, but beyond. What are their key problems and needs? Move up one layer from that. How does your broad set of platforms deliver features and benefits that uh, address those needs? And then what is the commonality between, yes, they are in different industries or, or medical verticals, but what is the common story that we can tell? So the answer, long story short, this, this, this story is going on too long, is the basic positioning was this idea that irrespective of what medical vertical they are in, fundamentally engaged MDs in the business of saving clinicians and nurses time so that they have more time to actually apply their trade. And so we summarize that sentence with this very pithy slogan. There's a lot of other stuff below it, but the basic idea was engaged MD helps carers carry on caring. And in a market these days where attrition amongst frontline staff is huge, that message very much resonated. It's kind of, it's almost like a level above. It's a bit more emotive, but it's still very much grounded in fact. And our positioning deliverables always include messaging pillars, proof points. How does it drill down to every single audience? Huge warning and red flag, though, is that often when bad practitioners of brand strategy are handed this, we've expanded, so there we need to, therefore we need to expand the brand problem. The wrong way to approach it is to go too far up the benefit ladder and say, hey, what's common between all of these things is a uniting belief or purpose, which is we want to help people or whatever. That's the worst thing you can do because you it doesn't actually articulate value. The positioning, even in its broadest sense, has to communicate unique value. Yeah, it's interesting. That seems to be, I don't know if that's becoming less of a thing, but it definitely feels like brand purpose has been very trendy for the last couple of years. I, I'm not sure if you're seeing this slow down or speed up. What are your thoughts on brand purpose overall? So for example, I think uh, people use Starbucks as a as a punching bag here, but it's like connecting the world one cup of coffee at a time or something like this. What are your thoughts? I think brand purpose is the most value destructive thing that has happened to marketing in the past two decades. I think it is sold by chancers and snake oil salesmen. It came out of the Simon Sinek, people care about your why. Let's, let's just put it this way. I think there was an entire industry that tried to make the business case that people are going to go against their functional best interests and are going to buy an inferior product because they somehow resonate with your with your beliefs. All of those surveys that claim that use stated importance rather than derived importance, and it's a fraud. It's an absolute fraud, and partially I know this because I was on the other side writing those surveys. Let's let let me be a bit more windy about it and be a bit more scientific about why purpose is value destructive. Three reasons. One, purpose statements are bland by design. What do I mean by that? All purpose statements are arrived at by going up the benefit ladder. 
So you basically say, we offer this product, but why do we offer it? Because it's not because of, not because of this functional benefit, but this is emotional benefit. But why do we do that? And you, once you keep on doing that, you essentially get to a category generic benefit that is shared across all the competitors in the category. This is exactly why every single telco, their purpose is something about connecting communities. That's why every single airline, their purpose is about connecting something or the other. So the problem with that is you can have a purpose internally, but the minute you articulate that and make that the form, the basis of your comms is it fails the first test of marketing, which is they're all the same. So you have a blandness of purpose, purposes, and now all of a sudden your advertising is ignored because it blends in rather than stands out. First problem. Second problem is all purpose comms are, I find, very emotionally restrictive. So they all tread on a single type of emotion, which is this very kind of let's pull on heartstrings and tell very emotional stories about our category. The challenge with that is that it lacks category relevance. So you'll have toilet paper brands talking about world peace, and it's just not relevant to the category. And so if you think about T-Mobile, it's a great example. T-Mobile, great positioning around Uncarrier. We are going to channel frust- consumer frustrations. If they had a purpose statement, it it would stop them from actually deploying the very aggressive person that brand personality that they did, which was all about channeling consumer frustrations. And I think the third thing, reason why purpose as a basis for brand comms is very value destructive is that it doesn't speak to anyone. So if you think about your total addressable market and what are the top needs within the category, most purpose comms tend to talk about world peace, CSR, the environment. None of those, those are all great things. But none of those are drivers of purchase in a category. So again, it kind of speaks over the head of, of a whole bunch of people. And there was a lot of, uh, there's a new set of data coming up from the IPA. Peter Field actually had it in a, in, in a white paper, but it showed that the long-term business effects of purpose campaigns are less than the long-term business effects of regular advertising campaigns. So my basic thing on purpose, have one if you want it internally. Uh, if you want it to you know, replace your mission, vision, values, go for it but do not make it the basis for your marketing. Interesting. I, I'm, I'm glad I asked you that question now because it seemed like there, there was a lot to, a lot to be said. <laughs> Sometimes it, <laughs> I remember when brand brand purpose was getting popular. I, I think it, it is a lot of what you said it, uh, somehow around the time of Simon Sinek's book, you know, start with why I remember thinking, I don't care why I don't even know why half the, products i buy what the why is behind their companies i just care that it does x y and z but i was a bit confused as to why it became so popular but that's a discussion for another day but to your point i think you nailed it on the head it takes a very dim view of the consumer that they're gullible and they can just be won over with some kind of very emo thing to say i just think i think that's kind of it's not intelligent it's disrespectful and as I said before, it's value destructive. Right. It's it's easy to po- uh, to point out the inauthenticity of a lot of these statements. You know, if if you say glorious things on the front and you don't pay tax on the back, uh, those things are quite uh, easily spotted as being quite hollow. I think. There you go. How would you break down the process of positioning? So, for people who are trying to wrap their heads around the step by step behind this idea. We do it in three steps. The first one is called, we unlock a company's hidden advantage. 
Two, we align an organization around that advantage. And then three, we express that advantage visually, verbally, and virtually. So let's go into the first one, unlocking companies in advantage. We take a very kind of outside in mixed with inside out approach. So what do we mean by unlocking your hidden advantage? Earlier in the hour, we talked about brand positioning articulates the unique value a company can deliver. So let's go ahead and find that unique value. So first we have to figure out kind of what does your product do? What is the problem it solves? Work up the benefit ladders. What are the functional benefits? What are the intangible benefits? And it's not just from the product, right? It can also be kind of where the company's from, its culture, its values, stuff like that. So we try to first isolate what can this brand deliver that no one else can. Then we also go outside in. Let's look at the needs of your constituents. What are their unmet needs? What are the problems they're trying to solve? And ideally, if you think about a Venn diagram, we're trying to find the overlap between the capability, unique capabilities of company and the needs of the people it serves. So that's what we call kind of unlocking the hidden advantage. And that's more of a kind of a dry strategic thing. Right. So we're not, you know, when we're talking to kind of executives inside companies, we're not we're not articulating a hidden advantage in 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 a slogan or fancy words. We're using very kind of functional words to describe, hey, is this what we want to rally the brand behind? And then you get gain consensus around that. The second part, which is aligning an organization around that advantage, is I just touched on that, but as I said before, we don't think of positioning as just something that makes marketing more effective, but it needs to be useful for sales. It needs to be a filter through which you make decisions about the customer experience. So think about a great example of T-Mobile, right? So if their whole positioning is about the uncarrier, well, that led to a number of service propositions around, you know, no roaming, for example, we're going to rip up the contract. All of those things came from the positioning. So really getting alignment cross-functional alignment inside a business as to this brand is not just a slogan, but it is a filter for decision-making. It's the fundamental value that we offer customers. And then how do we bring that to life in different facets of the organization? And the third one is expressing that. So we said, once we have all of those things, how do we say that in a, in a, in a very kind of fresh and captivating way? I think we have a white paper called How Challengers Can Position for Growth. And one of the things that we say is you can do all of the strategic legwork up front, but if you don't express something in a way that is different and unique and fresh, it's dying a premature death, both internally and externally. So let's give two examples of that. One, the AA, the Automobile Association in the UK, they're they're the people who you call when your car is broken down. So their whole strategy was they were losing share of voice. There were other competitors. They wanted to reinforce how they were central to the lives of people in the UK. Well, the positioning, the way they articulated that in a very fresh way was the fourth emergency service, which is brilliant. It's beautiful, right? So there's the police, there's the ambulance. I don't know what the third one is, but they're the fourth, right? And so it's only, I don't want to sound facetious, but there's a, I often very much believe that white spaces only come to life through great words. And so you have to do the, you have to do all of the strategic legwork and then you have to marry it with expression that is unique and different. And that's, I used a verbal example, but also visual, right? So how do we take the, how do we take the positioning and bring it to life across our visual identity and then virtual? 
we did the V just because it's there's alliteration, but virtual is kind of experiential. How do we bring that to life across our onboarding experience uh, when you come to the homepage, so on and so forth. A lot to unpack here. Coming back to the first step, which is you know, reviewing your strategic, I guess, strengths and the market perceptions or interests or desires. What role does competition play here? Huge role. So in, in the first phase, we audit in four key areas. It's called the four C's. There's the four C's and there's four D's. I know it's confused, but the four C's are essentially company, competition, customer, contacts. So those are the four big homework areas where we will do desk research, we can do surveys, we can do interviews. So competition plays a very big role because it tells you what you can say and what you cannot say and what space has been taken. I think it also tells you generally where the momentum in the market is going. And so just looking at the competition can reveal where the opposite direction is. So if everyone, so one of, I'll give you an example. We're working with a SaaS, Swedish SaaS company called Quinix. They are the world's leader in workforce management software, which basically helps frontline staff clock in and out of work. So if you work at McDonald's, how do you know when you're going to be scheduled? So everyone within that category is, is moving more towards purpose and HR type stuff, you know, like we're going to create the best place where you can work, where you can fulfill your dreams. So immediately that tells us don't go there. There's another place to go. So competition is very important, I would argue. I'm not saying that consumers, as a caveat, I'm not saying that consumers are, are, are completely rational in their buying processes and they create exhaustive lists of competitors and weigh the pros and cons. But nonetheless, I think they're not stupid as well. So looking at competitors is important, even more so in a B2B context where purchase is driven through a more formal RFP process. It, I, I can see what you mean there, where it may actually highlight for you where the opportunities are. So for example, say it, say it's a pizza company. <laughs> if everyone else is saying fast, perhaps your idea is to say, well, we're slow. And that means that we take care and what we produce is higher quality and stuff like that. Is that similar to what you're saying? Exactly. Got it. When it comes to aligning your organization around it, how have you found that this is, does this affect the product mix as well? Ideal state scenario, yes. In reality, does it always happen? No. So we as a firm try to encourage our clients to create the conditions whereby people outside of marketing see a brand positioning, not just as a marketing device. So what does that mean? One, when you start the project, create a cross-functional decision committee. Involve people in sales, involve people in product, involve people in customer success. So immediately they know we're not just talking about an ad or a slogan. And I think that said, especially in SaaS companies, they welcome that only because there's always a million ideas of what people can do. There's a whole list of features. There's a whole list of customer experience things that people want to do. But none of those business units have a filter to decide which ones we should prioritize. So when it's done right, I actually find people from those BUs welcome brand strategy because it is a filter for decision-making, right? An, an example of that is take the two hotel chains, the Westin Hotel and uh, the W, right? 
So the W is a lot more funky. Its brand is about being hip, sexy, and cool. The Westin is about a place to relax, and it's the best sleep ever. How does those two positionings inform decision-making across the customer experience? Well, per cap, per customer, the W is putting way more money in their lobbies and bars. Facts. The Westin is not. They're driving their investments into their mattresses, right? The Westin bed, their fluffy pillows. So I think when you when clients think about selling in a positioning inside a business, articulating its utility beyond marketing and as fundamentally a thing that helps the business save time. We don't need to, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to have this conversation again. It is a filter for decision-making. It helps businesses move faster. I think that's a great way of aligning an organization around positioning. Why? By showing people how it benefits them in their day-to-day. Got it. And talking about the third phase here where you, where you mentioned you need to dramatize the differences, what would you say are the key creative elements here that you need to create or the assets that you would need to create here? I'll give you a dumb answer insofar as I'll just list all of them. <laughs> I think there's um, on the messaging slide, on the messaging side, usually there's a slogan, there's an about us paragraph, mm-hmm. there's messaging pillars, there's a tone of voice guide. And frankly, I'm a big believer that the messaging can't just sit in a guidelines document. It needs to be useful, right? So at the end of a positioning project, at least with my firm, the above the fold on the website is being changed as a result of that. The About Us page is being changed. The key messaging on the product pages is being changed. So it's not this kind of esoteric thing that you draw inspiration from. No, it is actionable messaging. Sales scripts change. We do. We often do, you know, describe the positioning or describe the company in three seconds, 30 seconds, three minutes with specific proof points. So now sales teams have updated collateral they can go to market with. So that's on the verbal side. On the visual side, if you want to think about your typical brand identity, there's logo, there's color palette, there's illustration, there's photography, there's motion. Sometimes there's sonic stuff. There's There could be brand mascots and characters. It, there's Really, you can do anything on those sides. I think generally as a rule of thumb is that brands that are less well-known should try to have fewer but stronger and more dominant elements in their visual expression toolkit. What do I mean by that? If, for example, let's say you're, I don't know, let's say you're a charity and you're not a really well-known charity and your media budget is not as big as the big charity, what that basically means is, say, for example, you only have five, five times you can interact with the customer. I'm using that as an as a analogy for like your media budget. Whereas the big brand can afford, can speak to the customer a hundred times. On those five times, I'm not going to say five different things. I'm going to say the same thing five times and I'm going to look exactly the same. So choosing one dominant color, for example, having a single very sharp tone of voice, having less nuance within your palette of expression and rather making it bold. You know, you don't need 10 colors. You don't need a photography style and an illustration style. Use one mascot, choose a bold color that no one else does and speak in a certain way. Got it. So we talked about the the three different phases or the three different steps behind developing your positioning. How would this apply differently to a, a startup doing it for the first time? And how would the need, when would it need to revisit 
the positioning over time. So, for example, is it three years or five years? What's the difference between the two stages? Not much. I think <laughs> I think the amount of stakeholder engagement is broader when you're a larger firm, and that gets more complicated. The number, the rounds of revision uh, increase. I think with a very early stage startup where you're still trying to find uh, market fit, I would, to your point, I would do almost kind of a minimum viable version of all of it. And then I would revisit that more frequently. You kind of don't want to do that. Once you've gotten revenue, you're a successful business, you know, a couple million in revenue, then I think you want to revisit a positioning in a similar cadence to any large organization. You want it to last for three, four, five years. You don't want to do that every year. So I think the real difference is more in a very early stage pro, uh, startup. I wouldn't overinvest too much into it until you start started to get traction in the market. Second last question, just before we go, say you you've done the positioning exercise and you've you've gone through the three steps, you've you've rolled out the visual, the creative elements across the the company and the brand. How do you confirm that things have been done properly? So measuring success is quite easy. One is at the start of the engagement, we had talked originally about how do we diagnose whether you need a positioning? So we talked about the four Ds, and then we also talked about some of the metrics within your marketing and advertising. Well, what you do is you set, you, you take all of those. We know what those were before you, you positioned and you rolled out the new brand. And then you look at it after. So let, when we're running our campaigns, is our say if we have a video element, is the video percentage view rate, has that gone up? Is Has our CTRs gone up? Is the flow on our website? Are people going from the homepage to the product page? So exactly the same kind of metrics you use to build a business case for doing a positioning, you want to revisit it after, and ideally you will see a lift in all of those. Very straight and to the point. For people who want to learn more and connect with you, where should they go? Best place to go is creativebusinesscompany.com. Also, you can follow me on LinkedIn. We post a lot of our thought leadership there. So look for me, Fessel Siddiqui. That's it, really. LinkedIn, our website, and you can always just get in touch with us if you want to. Fantastic. I'll be sure to put the links to those places in the show notes. Otherwise, thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 